Are you ready for some nosy bitches? Because this is about to get explicit. Hey, bitches. Hey, friends. Hey, Carla. Michael. How you doing, girl? How are you doing? I'm still so tired. (laughs) (laughs) So Carla and I just got back from my bachelor weekend in New Orleans, and we can confirm that A, we had a great time. Yes. And that B, we are no longer 25. (laughs) Uh, 100% yes to that too. Not 25. Definitely felt every, I think my liver, my, I'm not even sure at this moment, like what was hurting, like my back, my liver and my kidney, like all meshed together and was just in pain. 100%. Well, I, I feel all of those things. I will say, no hangover, though. Yes. Like, that did not happen. Um, so slightly older versions of us are better at spacing things out, drinking yeah. lots of water. Although, I was up so far past my bedtime. Many nights. All weekend. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't, for our listeners that don't know, I'm legitimately, like, in bed by 10 o'clock. Like, face washed, teeth brushed, <laughs> ready to go night night. And there were multiple days this weekend that I was up until one in the morning. Yeah, I was so. going to say, I think there was one that we were even up till two oh in the morning. Oh my God. Um, and we were washing face at two in the morning. Uh, um, but it was such a good time. It, it was, was so good too. The house was amazing. Yes. Very um, nice house. It's always weird when you're bringing together different friend groups. Like yep. nervous is the wrong word for it, but there's always just a little bit of trepidation. Like, is everyone going to like each other? But everyone got along. We got, had good meals. I got my fortune read, my palm read and all of that stuff. Um, so we're going to make it big in podcasting? I didn't ask about that specifically. Come on. Although he did give me lots of hints that I was on the right path in life. So, I like it. You know, I like it. I, well, you know. there was a lot to celebrate. So I'm so yeah, glad. Yeah, friend's birthday, like yes. my bachelor party. Um, someone's promotion. Yes. <laughs> yes. What, what? Yeah, yeah. So much to celebrate. Great weekend. I'm I'm still a little bit tired, but you know, we're, we're going to make it work for y'all. And we're so excited to be back with you. I know. So I will say before this episode, before we get into it, there are so many trigger warnings coming with this story. So oh obviously, God. as always, there is murder and mayhem, but also... There is a lot to do with not only sexual abuse, but child sexual abuse. So please, like, if this is just not for you, this is your trigger warning. Skip this episode. Go back and listen to another one or catch us in a following week. But there will be a lot of discussion on all of those things today. Yep, that's absolutely right. We are going to be going over the infamous Menendez brothers case, which I knew about, Carla. Like I knew, because if you're in this space, you know about this case. And anytime we research these things, you find out so much more. It's really complicated. I have so many mixed feelings on this one and how it ended up. And it's one of those two that's rather cut and dry. Like at the end of the story, we do know who murdered whom. Right. It's really the semantics about what kind of punishment do you deserve for this act, given some of the contextual information. This is a very classic, I think, nosy bitches type of story. Like it's the one that we like the most, right? It's very cut and dry. There is an ending. We will all be able to tell you at the end of the day, you know, what happened. But it's like the gray, like all of the reasons that we love to, to dive into these cases and talk about it. And I think the ones that I like the most from like the 90s and 2000s are because most of us did hear about these cases there are very few people that if I said 
the Menendez brothers doesn't recognize at least what happened. Yeah, that's right. Something at least goes ping yeah, in the brain. Like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember that. But the details of what happened are lost. I love to like rehash and talk about this because this case happens in a different platform, in different characters all the time. I feel so strongly like some of our other cases i'm like i don't know that they got the right guy we know that they got the right guy right. just the resolution that we arrived at did they get the right me, punishment that's right like it wasn't satisfactory at the end so um we're looking forward to diving into this sources from this today lots and lots of articles but really heavily drawing from a documentary that's on hulu right now it was done by a and e it's called the menendez brothers eric tells all what I'll say about this as a caveat to our listeners is that this is told from the Menendez brothers' perspective. It yeah. is told with a sympathetic skew toward their story. And in their minds, if you're to believe what they're saying on the documentary, trying to give us some details that maybe they didn't get in the media. And you and I have railed against the media often, right? They portray things in not great lights sometimes. And regardless of if it's good light or bad light, it's often just not accurate it's just not true if you're to believe eric on this documentary that's basically what he's trying to debunk saying you've never heard my story because i'm telling it to you for the very first time and you're getting to hear it kind of unabridged lifted heavily from that and also some various articles and we'll post those on our website are you ready to dive in i'm so ready i've been prepping myself for this moment because it is a heavy story there's a lot going on here yes while it may be cut and dry and so last night i think there was a little moment like Ugh. but also this is definitely a case that i have wanted to talk about for ever so i'm glad we're getting the chance to do it for those of you that don't know because all of this contextual information that i'm about to give you is going to require that you basically know the high level thirty thousand foot view of what happened here the straight up facts are that in august of 1989 well, I know. Isn't that crazy to think about? August of 1989, I was two years old. <laughs> we always okay, do the age thing. The I, know, I know, I know. I was seven. <laughs> You're beautiful and you look younger than me. And, you know. <laughs> August of 1989, dispatchers from Beverly Hills Emergency get a call from a frantic man who's saying that his parents have been shot. He's there with his brother, and they explained to the dispatcher through a really chaotic call that their parents have been shot. Police would come to suspect that the brothers were actually guilty of doing this, and they would eventually be tried and convicted of their parents' murder. But there are so many twists and turns to this case that are really dependent upon us understanding some of the characters in this a little bit better. So I want to take us back way before 1989, all the way to 1944, where on May 6th, Jose Enrique Menendez was born in Havana, Cuba. So he was the youngest child and the only son of Jose Francisco Menendez and Maria Carlotta. He had two older sisters, Teresita, who we'll call Terry, and Marta, who were born in 1939 and 1941. Marta, and some of this, you know, believe what you want, because I know sibling dynamics are just interesting. But Marta would say later in some interviews that Jose was her mother's darling and that honestly that relationship wasn't even the most healthy. She even claims that she believes she witnessed her mother molesting her brother when he was very young, like mm -hmm. a toddler even. 
and that she has heavy suspicions that that continued well into his school years. Whether it was because of this abuse or some other environmental and contributing factors, Jose's behavior begins to be problematic as he's growing up. His sister Terry would share that he would often make crude, inappropriate, and otherwise embarrassing comments when guests were over and that he would really enjoy doing it. Would take joy out of seeing them super uncomfortable, which already strikes me as a little bit odd. Right. Like, there's, it's one thing to be able to laugh at yourself in those situations when you've inadvertently done something kind of taboo. It's something else entirely to do it just to watch people squirm and to take joy in it. So on top of this, we've already got some problematic behavior, but both sisters would later recount that he was rarely, if ever, disciplined by their parents when he would go on doing these things, and that they felt it really fed into this feeling of superiority that he had and he truly did treat others according to them like he was superior to them that they were inferior to him i can imagine growing up feeling like you're almost untouchable like if your parents anytime you should be getting in trouble are coming to your defense and preventing that from coming forward number one that makes some of his sister's commentary make sense but also knowing what we know about this case just trying to kind of build a bit of a profile about this this guy that we're going to be diving into it reminds me of some of the things that were said about like scott peterson yeah that like he was the darling boy and you know he could do no wrong and you know he was very successful in what he accomplished as far as like his athleticism and he was good looking and things like that it is interesting these things on that are on their surface are kind of benign they begin escalating the Menendez family, as an example, belonged to a country club in Havana, and in 1954, when Jose was 10 years old, he set fire to the country club's floor during a Christmas party. His father had to pay for the damages, but his mother apparently wouldn't allow anyone to discipline Jose over the incident. I would say whether or not like the abuse is accurate or not, like that's it's just not good. You know, I don't want to say, I mean, I guess I will. It's just not good parenting. Like, to not hold your child responsible because at the end of the day, your job as a parent is to raise them to be, like, productive human beings in society and telling them that there is no no one who is going to hold you accountable for anything doesn't set anybody up it for is, good stuff. It does make me think, because I know in some cultures that this is a thing where, right. like, when it's a man, yeah. you are automatically deferential, right? So is Jose some of the special treatment that he got from his parents growing up? Is it because... He's the man. I don't know if that's true in Cuban culture because I just can't imagine like my parents ever letting me get away with that. If I said a slightly sideways word in church that no one else heard, I was still likely to get bopped on the back of the head. Yeah. Very swiftly corrected by my parents. Never violently, but like corrected. Yeah. Don't don't do this again. Yes. And there is, you know, there's always a dynamic between mothers and sons. You know, moms are always less harsh. Sure. Sometimes on the opposite sex, where sometimes we're harder on our daughters, and then fathers, you know, the opposite, they're sometimes harder on the boys than they are on the girls. But right, like at the end of the day, behavior is still behavior. You still have to, you know, my child's stuff to curb it, right? Yeah, boy or girl, child sets fire to country club, child will get corrected. Child needs to have some parameters put in place, and right? My parents always felt that, like, you would get corrected by many people. So like if you got in trouble at school. It takes a fucking village. <laughs> right. You get corrected by the school. And then like we come from a big family. And even now my nieces and nephews, like not only do does your parents know that you did wrong, but like my sisters and I, like we're texting each other to let, you know, what our kids did wrong. So now you can continue to be You get this shame from it, the whole family. Right. So, you know. So it really settles in. <laughs> yeah. So 
from a community standpoint, you are shamed yes. <laughs> from every relative that you know. Oh, family. Yeah. <laughs> I kid, I kid. I love you, mom. Anyway, the whole point being that Jose's behavior is really starting to escalate. It continued to be a problem for him. He was kicked out of two grammar schools due to his behavior, and he was kicked off of a swimming team at some point. When he entered his teenage years, he became an outspoken critic of Fidel Castro. He's already kind of got this like bad boy persona about him. Probably didn't help when he became all vocal and it doesn't sound like he's very good at maybe keeping things to himself. It leads to a really important turning point in Jose's life. Fearing that Jose would be punished for these outspoken criticisms of Castro, Maria had Jose leave Cuba with his sister Terry's fiance Carlos on October 7th in 1960 when he was only 16 years old. The entire family would eventually leave Cuba and come to the United States, settling in Pennsylvania where Jose attended high school and was on another swim team. When Jose first came to the United States, he didn't speak or understand any English, but he eventually became fluent in the English language. Just had to make that transition to get this better life from him and hopefully to get him out of the ire of Cuba's leader. I was very nerdy in middle school and I did a big, huge history project on the rise of Fidel Castro. And so his mother was probably spot on that if he was being critical of Castro, not only by Castro, but by Castro's people. Because when Castro first rose up, the there was a lot of Cuban people who wanted him in power. So smart that they moved. Interesting that they ended up in Pennsylvania. Of all places, right? I guess like up the eastern seaboard why Hazleton, Pennsylvania, of all places? It's a very good question. Jose had aspirations of going to an Ivy League school after high school, but he couldn't afford it ultimately. He did, however, earn an athletic scholarship to Southern Illinois University. Okay. This ended up being a theme later with the family too. They were just lots of great athletes. And I don't know if it was true at this point, but they did talk about later, even before the family really started to have money, their talent made them kind of members or at least outskirts members of high society, right? They were almost like pseudo-celebrities because of some of their boys' athletic achievements for whatever it's worth. So it sounds like Jose was kind of on that same path. While attending Southern Illinois University, Jose met Mary Louise Anderson, otherwise known by her family and friends as Kitty. The pair met when Jose went as a crew member to work at the campus TV station. They quickly became a couple, and within just a few weeks started talking about marriage. Neither of their families initially thought this was a good idea. Jose's parents were disapproving because Kitty was the child of a divorce, and Kitty's parents were disapproving because Jose was, of course, Cuban. But after Kitty graduated, the couple eloped. This was in 1963, and they moved to New York City. Jose enrolled at Queens College and majored in accounting. Meanwhile, Kitty was working as a grade school teacher in the Bronx. Jose worked hard in school. He eventually passed his CPA exam and graduated from Queens College as a certified accountant at the age of 21, which wow. is, I know, right? Pretty impressive. And after graduating, he went on to work for Coopers & Librand, which is a big accounting firm. His salary was $25,000 a year at the time, which gave him and Kitty just enough to be able to afford an apartment in a halfway decent neighborhood in Queens. They had their first son, Joseph Lyle Menendez on January 10th, 1968, while Jose was still working there at Coopers and Librand. The young family eventually moved to New Jersey, where they had their second son, Eric, 
who was born on November 27th, 1970. So shortly after Eric's birth, Jose was sent to Chicago to audit a client of Cooper's and Librand and briefly lived in Hinsdale, Illinois. The management was really impressed with Jose's work ethic. So impressed, in fact, that they offered him a job as the company's comptroller, which he, of course, accepted. That was going to be a big step up for him and Kitty. And he soon became the president of the company. Oh, wow. And so, like, moving and shaking. Like, so clearly, whatever Jose was doing and whatever people's opinions of him are at this point, Homeboy is working hard. Right. And He's a hard waves. worker. That's right. However, the position didn't last long because after Jose and the company's chairman got into an argument about the direction of the company, Jose decided to step down from the company. He went on to work for Hertz, the the car rental organization. That's right. And the family moved back to New Jersey, so a bit of a return home. In 1973, Jose actually became the CEO of the company. And in 1979, worldwide general manager. While working at Hertz, he gained a reputation that would stay with him for the rest of his life of being a really abrasive person. A lot of people referred to him as ruthless and aggressive as a businessman. And again, that's just something that came with him his whole life. That was so acceptable back then. Like, I was going to say, it's you probably... You can't be that way anymore, really. Yeah. No, I was going to say, it's it's probably a very normal dynamic for most CEOs in the early 70s, especially in a place like New York, New Jersey. Like, I mean, the same. I would say the same thing about any big city that, you know, but I, I think especially of that region. I'm dating an executive and i can tell you right now he's gonna hate that i said this but i believe (laughs) it to be true like every rank that you go up there's a cost for it right like you give something up for some people it's compassion and empathy for some people i think it's like you just give up some work-life balance but there is a cost for ascending to that level of success and i you know Sounds like the cost for him maybe were some of those niceties, if they were even there to begin with. His reputation of being that ruthless, aggressive businessman followed him for the rest of his life. After his career at Hertz ended, Jose was sent to work for RCA Records. So this was really the start of his uh, business in entertainment. Okay, I was wondering how it switched over. That's right. So I, you know, went from being this worldwide general manager of a massive rental company over to RCA Records. I guess being an executive is being an executive. It, it felt like a huge shift. But even at RCA Records, his ethics were brought into question when he sent large amounts of records to stores to make sales appear larger than they really were. Jose was responsible for signing bands such as Eurythmics and Menudo while working at RCA Records. Mm. After his time at the company ended, he went to work at Live Entertainment in 1986 and moved the family to California. The family initially lived in a house in Calabasas. However, that didn't last long. So Eric actually burglarized some of the neighbors' homes in the neighborhood. So the family ended up having to move to Beverly Hills to kind of escape the stigma of that. I didn't know that. I didn't either until researching Hmm. this. Already these signs that maybe family life isn't so stable. Like if that's something that you're doing, like what is a a rich kid doing burglarizing other rich kids' homes? Yeah. What's going on? Anyway, all the thoughts on that. By 1989, Jose worked for Carol Co. Pictures, a successful independent movie studio in Los Angeles. He was on the board of directors there. 
by this time in his career, and we're talking 1989, he had amassed a wealth of between 14 and 15 million dollars, which in today's currency would be something like 35 million dollars. A long way from 25,000. Can you imagine? To 15 million. I mean, just insane where he was able to go. I would be impressed with 15 million today. Like I mentioned before, Jose could be very ruthless. It extended even to his family, unfortunately. Like it's one thing to be that way in business. And often you'll see people can be that very aggressive person at work. And then they come home and you see this softer side of Sears with their family. That was not the case here. He was described by witnesses as being verbally abusive and very cruel to his wife, Kitty, even going so far as to publicly humiliate her, like would yell at her, scream at her, put her down, shove her, like just right out in public for everyone to see, tell her to shut up. Lyle and Eric, as well as some of their cousins, testified that Jose would beat Kitty with a belt at home. Like just awful shit. On top of being wretched to Kitty, Jose was described as having a pretty sick obsession with his oldest son. He would have hours-long talks with him, telling him all about his own philosophies as a human being. He would force him to memorize passages from self-help books that he thought were important. He would black out the parts of the books that he didn't agree with. Jose was psychologically, physically, and sexually abusive towards Lyle from what we know. He attempted to control every aspect of his life, such as where he went to school, his career, who he would marry, everything. And he would punish him for crying, would not allow for any weakness for the men in his family. And he would punish him by punching him or sending him away. So giving him some sort of physical or emotional pain to, to get him to stop. Eventually, he taught Lyle to stop crying on command. That is absolutely horrifying. It's such a strange and just absolutely vile dynamic with his son. So I think it's like part of that thing that if there are rumors that he was being abused, it's very likely that your initial reaction to being a parent for the first time, especially to two boys, and you've never raised children before, is that you would be a little bit harder, especially on the first one as they're coming up. But like when you're taking it to this extreme, that tells you that something isn't right. Like something didn't, something didn't grow in you correctly. Something didn't, something about you is wrong, rotten even. I, I'm not a parent myself, so some of this is just me pontificating wildly, so forgive me, listeners. I am just a fan of the idea that no matter how hard we try, we end up emulating our parents in some ways. And the ones that I think end up being great parents are the ones that if they witness bad behavior are able to register it as that and able to see it in themselves and cut it off and say, nope, we're not doing that. I'm making a very conscious choice not to do it. Or if you did have good parenting that you emulate that and say, this is a good example that like, as you get older, you recognize those things. Either way though, if, if part of your filtering mechanism, which it feels like some of Jose's clearly wasn't maybe tuned up appropriately, didn't have that filter. Like the whole point is we emulate our parents. So like, as I'm, reading some of this, knowing some of what his sister said about him as a child and that he very likely was abused as well. Like he's literally just parenting the way he was parented. And almost in the extreme opposite. So like where he was never held accountable, he's holding them in- Hyper accountability. Yeah, hyper accountability. So it is kind of, you know, I mean, it's not even interesting. It's honestly just horrifying. It's, yeah, it's horrifying. It really is. 
Eric was described as Jose's throwaway son by some observers. Just he didn't. Because he's the second child. He was the second child. And like while expectations on him were high, they just were never as high as they would be uh, of Lyle. So when Eric was young, Jose would smack him or push him away when he would try and get involved with him and Lyle. Lyle described his father as being very rough towards Eric. Like Lyle, he was punished for crying. Jose began sexually abusing Eric as well when he was six years old and continued to do so for the rest of his life from what we know. As Eric gets older, the abuse became more sadistic and painful. You're probably going to talk about this, but as we know, because these are both the boys and their telling, but there are family members who testified, who shared, and these are family members of both Kitty and Jose who said that they witnessed things that did not feel right, like didn't feel right in the moment. And while obviously there are only two people who are left to account for what happened, there are other people who say that, yes, it seems that this story is correct. And that's what's so hard about child abuse at this age is that it's highly underreported. It's so hard to prove when you're talking about it 18 years later. Like, and most people, most anyone will tell you when you're abused like that, you can't even reconcile with it until you're in your 40s. And by that time, like, how are you going to prove that you were abused? So a lot of times it really does come down to your account and then maybe someone else's account who can back up. It's not like there's a video of it. Like it's not this, you know, proof that people are looking for. It's the same thing we've heard with other accounts of people talking about priests who abuse them or think the whole situation with like Michael Jackson, like yes. you can't prove it this, these days. What did you, you know, there's, there was nothing oh, there. That's right. There was no there's audio no phys- recording. There's, there's no, no physical evidence. Yeah. Generally there's not, I have heard of a couple of situations where there are, so you have to go by your own account and then other people's account. And that's just hard. And it's so hard to, to drive that point even further home they're getting snippets of it. Right. Like, so even if you, even if I witnessed bad behavior, it might be the only time that I've ever seen bad behavior from this person. Even if I see it two or three times, I think our temptation is just to be all like, oh, they must have had a bad day. Unfortunately, he was just a sadistic son of a bitch. Like, there is no denying it. Like you said, lots of people came to bear witness of this. He was described, in fact, by both of his sisters, in addition to everything that we learned earlier, as being exactly that, as being sadistic. Some examples of this were the fact that, like we mentioned, he would ridicule others and find joy in making people feel upset, inferior, or somehow otherwise embarrassed. And he would play just really sick pranks on people, like not not funny, like things like telling them that his wife had cancer. And he would find it funny when people would be treating her all delicately and gentle and trying to help her. Like, who finds joy in that? There was uh, one of his co-workers described Jose humiliating employees at work and that he was frightening and intimidating. A neighbor of his talked about Jose would put on pornography at dinner and find it amusing how uncomfortable it made people. His behavior towards his sons was described as sadistic as well by several of the boys' tennis coaches His nephew testified that Jose would inflict pain endurance tests on his sons as well as on on him and that he would pick him up under his armpits so hard that it would leave bruises. 
a well-known madam in the area who provided escorts to various of the Hollywood elites. And remember, they're big time now. Like he's amassed a pretty great fortune. She told the New York Post at one point that whenever he would order escorts from her company, that he would physically insult them, that he would beat them and pretend to rape them. And when they came back, they would be crying and terrified almost every time. See, that's the part that I have such a hard time is this is a history of bad behavior over and over and over again. And when people call into question later, was this an accurate story? And you have, like, this is all that you can account for, right? Lyle and Eric will never be able to show, quote unquote, proof that this had happened. Their only way is to show this history. And that is And how, to show character witnesses yeah, almost. But that's how abusers work. So that's like, right. Anytime that I've, you know, questioned or looked at people who have been accused of abuse or things like that, I was like, don't worry if you feel like one person who you're having to prove. Because guarantee when police start looking into it, there are going to be other people. Abusers don't just abuse one time. Or I should say, rarely ever abuse just one time. That's right. They abuse for the rest of their life. We saw it with Lorena and John, right? That's right. What happened? Lorena changed her whole life. John Bobbitt went on to continue to abuse women and was arrested for abusing women many years later. They don't stop. They continue to do that. So like, this is who he is. This is Jose Mendez. Like, he is an abuser. They should never call into question anything that anybody says as far as that type of behavior. I do feel like for some of my opinions on an unsatisfactory outcome, that the depths of his depravity are really important here though, right? I hear what you're saying. And this is not just your average sick fuck. Right. This is a really messed up human being. And I think it speaks to what might have happened in the boy's head when they made some of the decisions that they did in 1989. Yeah. Like, I just, like, it's part of it. Case in point, because we ain't done sharing some of these horrible things. I know, I'm sorry. So that same madam that we were talking about that said that Jose would abuse uh, many of her girls said that on multiple occasions he had also requested girls under the age of 13, and she had (sighs) to let him know that she did not employ any minors. Some of this is going to get rough. We'll have to decide whether or not we leave this in the episode. But I do think it's important because I think, again, the depths of depravity here are it's it's context for an important conversation has to happen around cases like this. Yeah. And whether or not we allow some of this contextual information around abuse to come in. So if you watch the documentary and if you go on YouTube, you can find all sorts of transcripts of this some videos of some of the testimony like it's it's just heart-wrenching during some of that testimony eric menendez testified that jose would force him into all sorts of just i mean horrific sexual acts as eric got older his father began using thumbtacks needles ropes and knives on his thighs and on his genitals while forcing eric to give him oral sex eric also said that jose once raped him while holding a knife to his throat I will say watching, and I didn't hear all of that probably because I just blocked it out of my mind, but I will say watching the two boys testify yes, and the one brother crying and it, you could tell like it's, it's, 
that's not what he set out to do. Like he was trying to hold himself from crying. Yes. And the tears are uncontrollably. How can you talk about down, that? Yes. Right. Coming down his face. And you can just tell like he's trying to. I mean, my heart just physically broke at that moment. It was so hard to watch. And for me, it was probably where I was like, they're telling the truth. And maybe, maybe it's not always cap. I don't know. No, they're telling their truth. And so it, that part was just so heart-wrenching to watch. It's important to like feel that way yeah. when we watch it because there was an argument made by the prosecution that it was just good acting. Right. Like, let us be clear that just because these boys grew up with their father in the in- entertainment industry, number one, father was in record company. This is music, not acting. Also, these boys have not been to acting school. Like, they're not fucking Julia Roberts. Like, that's not what's happening right now. Like, how can you? When I watched that, I'm like, people that are claiming that did not just hear the same thing that I heard. Like, there's no way that you can come to the conclusion that that was acting if you just heard and watched the same thing that I heard and watched. Well, first of all, their dad was a grown-up accountant who turned into a CEO. That's right. Like, he wasn't John Barrymore. Like, we're not talking about, like famous lines of actors for years and years and years. Yeah. We're talking about a CEO. That's right. Who had two sons, right, again, who were not actors. And I They were athletes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you could put the best actor. Like, I, I'm, you know, up against in a case like that and have us believe they're acting. No one can act that well. Anytime I hear that, that's not even an accurate storytelling. Look at Amber Heard. Who I think is, you know, she she's a good actress, but she was not a very good actress in nope. her, if that's what she was trying to portray. And even Johnny Depp, I don't even think that he was a great actor on the stand. He was, sometimes he was Aki's. Like, yes. there was definitely moments of, this is not your best performance. You could have done this better because it's not a performance. That's their real life. That's right. So I don't know. That's such a bullshit answer. And the prosecution to me was up a mountain when it comes to defending Jose Mendez. That's right. So they they had to, like, they, in order to counter the character assault that was happening on their client, they had to launch a character assault on the defendants. Like, it had to be how it went down, which is just, there is a reason that those kinds of moving performances where it feels like the actor or actress has been able to tap into something so visceral and so real, there are reasons that we give those big awards, right? Because it's so uncommon. If they were acting, they are the best fucking actors on this planet. Right. We should go get them out of prison and put them on the damn TV screen. We have their next careers. Bam. (laughs) Jesus. Makes me so, so upset. Just a pretty awful human being, Jose Menendez. And I think it's important that we see him both in the light of someone that worked really, really hard to overcome where he grew up. Like, it is okay that we can acknowledge hardworking motivated while also acknowledging sick sadistic bastard right yep hardworking piece of shit got it yeah exactly (laughs) awful human being so maybe it was no surprise that on august 20th of 1989 all the way back to the beginning of our story dispatchers at beverly hills emergency received a phone call from a frantic man one lyle menendez his brother eric is also there and the men claim to have found their parents dead at their california mansion During the exchange, Lyle is hysterical, can be really hard to hear, 
but through the garbled call, he does confirm for the dispatcher that his parents have been shot and that the killer is apparently no longer in the house. And you can also hear through some commotion him telling Eric to stay away from their bodies. To EMT's credits, they arrive pretty quickly at the house. They do confirm that day that Jose and Canadian Menendez were fatally wounded by a 12-gauge shotgun. Jose was shot six times, including the fatal shot in the back of his head. Kitty was shot 10 times in total. The scene, we're not putting these on our social, but just know yeah. that they are out there. You can get them on YouTube. You can get pictures. It is gruesome yeah like that is 16 gunshots from a shotgun authorities would begin an investigation to try and uncover the perpetrators of this murder including some mob leads like anytime Mm -hmm. that you're in hollywood and in big money um there was even one thread that i went down even said was it actually even some of the cuban government or some cuban elites that might have gone after him Mm -hmm. in the meantime while they're looking into these leads the brothers are pretty much free to go they seem to have an alibi when they look at it at first glance. They claim to have been out to see a movie, Batman, when their parents were killed. So they were free to go. I know. Interesting, right? 1989. That's yep. right. <laughs> Batman. The Batman. But as police keep looking into these potential suspects, trying to narrow down those that would have motivation to commit such a, a pretty gruesome crime, they did what all good police officers should do. And they start with the people closest to the victim. And... They began looking into Lyle and Eric's behavior, which unfortunately wasn't particularly flattering for them. In the months after the killings, the brothers began to spend pretty extravagantly on some pretty high-end items, luxury items, on travel, on business, on cars, all sorts of things. Just as a few examples, Lyle bought a Chuck's Spring Street Cafe, a Buffalo Wing restaurant in Princeton, New Jersey, and a Rolex watch and a Porsche Carrera. Eric hired a full-time tennis coach and went off to compete in a series of tournaments in Israel. Both of them were very, very talented athletes. So apparently they had several tennis coaches over the years. This just looks a little funky when you're doing it just a couple of months after your parents were brutally murdered for whatever it's worth. The brothers eventually left the Beverly Hills mansion unoccupied that their parents had been killed in, choosing to live in condominiums in the nearby Marina del Rey. They dined expensively, went on a bunch of trips. They went to London, they went to the Caribbean. When they looked into it, from August of 1989 to March of 1990, the boys collectively spent $700,000. Yes, they did. (laughs) So I'll just say, and I hope I'm not getting ahead of myself, but I'll just say, like these, you know, grade A actors, right, but apparently, were so good on the stand. Right. And were apparently the best actors we've ever seen, but were very clearly, obviously, showing from behavior this whole different light. It's like, they're not criminal. And again, good police work. You should look at the people closest to you. But I would say these are not criminal masterminds. Thank you. They looked guilty because they were guilty. I thought it was going to be way more than that. For whatever it's worth, too, family members later disputed a connection between the spending and the murders, saying that this was pretty in line, like maybe slightly more, but like realistically, they would be jet-setting all over the world anyway. Again, they were already great athletes. It wasn't unusual for them to hire tennis coaches and for them to be in these big competitions. Like All of this was pretty standard fare for a rich, wealthy Hollywood elite family. What I would bet that Jose Menendez was probably 
love to spend money, love to show off things like big extravagant vacations, yeah, things like that. That's what you do. You fall yeah. in line. It becomes this keeping up with the Joneses. Regardless of what the truth is here, the police see this. And to them, this looks like obvious financial motivation right. to do something. So in an attempt to get a confession from Eric, they thought that was their best bet. The police arranged for one of his friends to wear a wire during a lunch with Eric at a local beachfront restaurant. But when the friend asked Eric whether he had killed his parents, Eric flat out denied it. Eric did eventually confess, though, which even from the defense's standpoint, she would pretty openly say, his defense attorney, that this was not about judging whether or not these boys committed the crime. Like, we we have that on tape, and we'll get into some of the details here. But I just think it's interesting of note that, at least to his friends, like, there was this time when Eric and Lyle were trying very hard to cover up the fact that they had, had done this, which, to police, also looks suspicious. And it, it might have looked different had the very first thing out of their mouths been like, okay, we need to talk. Yeah. <laughs> We did this, or and we, we have a story to tell you. To call and say, like, hey, I've been dealing with all of this, you know, abuse or whatever. I finally broke. I've broke. I've snapped. This is what happened. Yes. This is, this is what I did. So I just get that to police, this doesn't look good. And Eric, like I mentioned, though, he does eventually confess. He actually con- confesses to his psychologist, a man named Jerome mm-hmm. Oziel, who then told a mistress of his, which is completely gross. I do not like that at all. And part of the reason apparently that he did that was because Eric had threatened him with death and basically said, you talk about this at all. And that threat of life allowed him to overcome some of the client privilege that normally exists between psychologists and their patients. So for whatever it's worth, that did all sorts of red flags, but also like what's he supposed to do when a client of his literally says, I will fucking kill you. Lyle was arrested on March 8th, 1990, after all of this came to fruition, and Eric turned himself in three days later, he was returning to Los Angeles from Israel on that tennis, that set of tennis tournaments that we mentioned earlier. And both were held without bail and kept separate from each other. Not only was there this confession made to the psychologist, but there are also tapes of those kinds of things, which typically are not admissible in court. But Judge James Albrecht ruled that the tapes of these conversations were admissible evidence since Ozeal stated that Lyle threatened him and that violated doctor-patient privilege, like we mentioned earlier. Albrecht's ruling was appealed, after which the proceedings were delayed for two years. So this case really, really dragged on. They really did try to wrestle that issue to the ground, Carla, to say, like, is it appropriate to put it in there? Ultimately, they decided that they had to, though that the tapes were admissible with the exception of the tape on which Eric was recorded discussing the murders. So they still had some of this contextual information that they could pull out, which I just think is so fucked up. Like you're having these conversations in confidence. And often when you're going to psychologists, you're having them not in your right mind. I still feel all sorts of weird about that being held against him. After that decision, a Los Angeles County grand jury issued indictments in December of 1992 finally formally charging the brothers with the murders of their parents. During the trial, the Menendez brothers stated that they committed the murders in fear that their father was in fact going to be killing them. They basically had threatened to expose his years of abuse, 
which I'll remind everyone was more than just emotional and physical. It was also these horrific sexual acts on his son. And the prosecution would ultimately say, yeah, that's BS. Like you did this for the money. Like ultimately, sure, you might have been abused some. It doesn't merit murder. The only reason you murdered was for the money. The cases became a national sensation when Court TV broadcast the trial in 1993. Represented by their defense lawyer, Leslie Abramson, the brothers stated that they killed their parents out of fear. And in fact, Eric in this documentary described this, I mean, just insanely tense boat ride where it appeared that his mother and father were taking both boys like out on the water with a bunch of staff to, to off them. And they ultimately were shocked themselves when they returned that day alive. Like they overheard some kerfuffles between their parents and ultimately returned alive. But in their minds, things were escalating. If they didn't do something, they were going to be murdered because their father wasn't willing to have his name sullied. All sorts of just fucked up things. Well, we've talked about these abusive, really toxic relationships that like if you feel like you're at the point that yes. you're either going, that you either want to or are going to cause physical harm and or death, trust and believe that if it's a mutually toxic relationship, your partner is probably at that too. It's very likely that if they're thinking about killing their dad, I think it's really possible that truly he could do something like that. I mean, he was very... And he had won over and over and over again. He had risen to the top. He was successful. He had convinced people, look at like the Murdochs, right? Like look at the levels that they were getting away to. He truly thought he could probably get away with it. I would guarantee that Menendez thought the same thing. And so the boys probably were likely, they were probably on the chopping block. And for whatever it's worth, family members came to their defense. Like no one came to Jose's defense. Something like 50 witnesses were paraded in front of these collective juries, and the prosecution could not find Anyone. a single person to say anything endearing about this yeah, man. There's nobody. They confirmed all of the bad behavior. Yeah, there's nobody. You know, I can say, like, you know, if I had to go to trial tomorrow, like, you're going to find some people who are going to say some nasty, horrible things about me. But you're still going to find people who are going to say some good things about 100%. me. 100%. Like, it's not going to be a one sided deal. I think. That's just the thing. Like, no one had anything good. People that he worked with, like, no one had nothing good to say about him. How do you think he was treating his family at home? There was, like, multiple incidents. And I think it is so telling that the family, for the most part, not everyone, but a majority of the family. The vast majority. Stood behind those brothers knowing that they had killed and for what their family motiv- member. And for what motivation? And for like, because they're not going to get any of that money. Like, what you talking about? Well, my thing is they had money. Like, like, yes. Their dad clearly was letting, even though he was highly abusive and, and made them suffer for it, he was letting them spend money. That's they, right. They could have. It was almost the cost of admission. Right. It, with Kitty, too, for whatever it's worth. That's what it seems yeah. like. I don't, that's why I think, like, Jose Menendez was fine with the money spending, like, the staturing and stuff like that. Like, I think he was okay with it. He I almost wonder if it was expected, and, actually. Yeah, he just he wanted to use and abuse them in the process. Yep, that was the cost. The brother's cousin, Andy Kano, said that as a child, he was told by Eric about the sexual abuse. So this is something that has been confessed 
on multiple occasions, not the first time to the psychologist, because I know that was part of the prosecution's aim, like, oh, why are we just now hearing about this? No, no, no. We've been hearing about this since they were children. Diane Vandermolen, another cousin of the brothers, stated that she once told Kitty about Jose's molestation of Lyle, and Kitty patently denied it. But this seemed to be a theme with her. It's like she would just deny, 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 push away. She became a drug addict, an alcoholic, was in deep depression herself. And I think to your point about this staturing, she kept putting on this show. And most people, including Eric in that documentary, say she absolutely knew what was going on, didn't do anything to stop it. So if I'm these boys, I'm feeling so powerless. This this abuser, who has been my abuser since I was a child, so it's not like he started abusing me when I was a full-grown man and when I would have had the opportunity to defend myself, both physically and emotionally and mentally. Right. I have been broken down for years. And maybe my one saving grace and thought at some point in my childhood was, well, you know, my mom must not know or my mom would save me or my mom would protect me. Then to find out later that your mother did know and didn't protect you and people besides you actually brought it up to her attention and she was just like, no, we're not, we don't talk about that. Like, what, Carla? See, and as a parent, you are your child's safe space. And for these two boys, they had no safe space because I guarantee, which it seems like there's plenty of evidence is that Kitty was being tortured and abused as well. And then if she was addicted, here's something about addictions is that when you're addicted to something, so let's, let's throw out the abuse, right? Let's, let's leave it. We already know that she was being heavily abused and there's probably all sorts of things that you can dissect there. But just thinking about addiction, if you are addicted to drugs, alcohol, pills, whatever, you are so focused on your addiction and yourself, you have no room in your life to love, protect your children. And it's so hard for children to realize that that means you're never going to have a relationship with that person Mm. because the addiction is taking every space in the room. It's taking every space in their life. That's all they're thinking about. And so like, I can imagine like, because I had the same thought, like, what, what were you doing, your kid? But like, if you have this addiction, and that doesn't excuse the behavior, I also believe that she was heavily, She was coping for abuse right. herself. That's right. She's got an addiction issue going on. She was being abused and things yeah. like that. But like, that's why these boys felt like they had no safe space. And I know it sounds like I'm making a lot of excuses for what they did in the end. And I don't know, maybe I am. Like, maybe there is a part of me that's like, they had no one real horrible them, shit though. to them and maybe maybe that is what you deserve because you know if you were to have put in a criminal if you would have been held criminally liable and we would have decided to put you up for the death sentence i would have easily said it's your prosecution and slept just fine that night so you know i do think that there are reasons for these types of behaviors and i think it's easy to say that like they did not have anyone and they probably had no association with their mom or any type of relationship with her. I mean, just, and how how could it even be genuine for Kitty, right? Yeah. Like, she was numbing her own pain. In some ways, too, it feels to me like Kitty all along had a bit of arrangement, right? Being in any relationship is yep. a compromise. You don't get 100% of what you want. And at some point, 
whether or not she actually articulated this in her head in these words, Kitty decided that the money, the status, the position that being this with this man gained her was more important than the rest. And then to your point, that gets further addled by addiction and you're no longer even thinking logically. Like there is no more logic to be had. There is just one foot in front of the other until my next fix, until my next fix, whether that fix is shopping, manicure, alcohol, barbiturate, something. Yeah. Mm, These boys. The whole trial was, was pretty rough. The prosecution, Pam Bozanik, for the first trials was particularly hard on the boys. They had again claimed heavy sexual abuse, had claimed rape. There were even pictures, I guess, of like, obviously not shorn in a pornographic sense, but pictures of them taken naked as boy, like of their genitalia that were shown there to basically prove like, this is not normal. Yeah, Parents do not take pictures just of their child's genitalia. Like you don't do I will that. say that I that's one of the things I said like earlier that like very rarely is there true evidence. Like you might get a few things. And I think in this case, there, there actually out, was. <laughs> outside the 50 people saying, hey, he would yeah. abuse you know, a street rat, like he would abuse anything that came into contact with him. There were some very weird things that they found in that house. Including pee and feces in bins underneath their beds because they were afraid to leave their bedrooms. Yeah. No. Like that is the kind of control that this man had over them. That's why they went and spent $700,000 after they died. They were probably like, this is the first Ding time. Ding dong, I, the witch is dead. Yeah, this <laughs> like, is the first on. time I have lived in my whole in my all, whole life. Whole life. And and they had all the makings of a good life. Like they had all of the things that could have led them to have this yes. good life. Yes. They thought like freedom was imminent. Eric really, especially like once he got off to college, he was like, I'm free. And one of the breaking points for him that he talked about in the documentary was Basically, his father being like, no, no, you're not. You have to come back several nights, a, like at least a night a week. Like you're coming back every weekend kind of thing. And I think he was still abusing them. Oh, 100% he yeah. was. And the the prosecution just tried to call BS. And it's like, we are so much more. I'm so glad we're better educated on what abuse, especially over literal decades, does to one's psyche. Because it just broke them down. But she straight up said men could not be raped because they lack the necessary equipment to be raped. Oh, all of the things like what, around like Pam, like fuck you, Pam. Yeah, all the things around these boys and downplaying their abuse because they're boys was honestly sickening. Like I am a hundred percent. Like I talk about all the women injustice over all the time. This was such injustice and really heartbreaking to watch, and like the way that we treated boys, men who claimed things like it I oh it just broke my heart all over again it was part of why it was so intense to watch I know we've talked a lot about the trial so quick recap here right basically the boys said that they had experienced all this abuse for their entire lives and Eric testified that a couple weeks before the night of the killings he had told his brother finally about the sexual abuse because that's another thing that Jose would do is make sure that they were isolated right Mm -hmm. make sure that they didn't know what was happening to each other and would you know, prevent them from telling basically with pain. Eventually the brothers had talked to each other and this led to several confrontations in the family where the brothers basically said, we're done with this. We're going to air it all out. Jose threatened to kill them and insinuated with his actions that that was a possibility 
that was going to happen. So the brothers claim through this whole uh, trial that this was all they just broke after years and years of abuse and they felt that there was an imminent threat on their life and the prosecution would argue that this was just for money that yes some bad things were happening but there were other ways that you would deal with that and that ultimately this just came down to greed the trial ended with two deadlocked juries and as a result the los angeles county district attorney announced immediately that the brothers would be retried the second trial was, they say somewhat here, but a lot less publicized. Um, and a lot of that was because the judge over that case said that he wouldn't let cameras in the court. It was the same judge, too. So the same judge that presided in the first court was the same one who presided. She so knew all of this stuff. Yeah. Stanley Weisberg was his name, by the way. And I was trying to Google him late yes. earlier. But it is the same judge who did it, who presided over the first one, who had heard all of the testimony about the abuse yep. moving into the second trial. So here's one thing that I didn't feel like came through in Eric's case, though, is that when he didn't allow, when the judge didn't allow a lot of this testimony to come into the second trial, because that's basically what happened. Like, no cameras were allowed in, and then he limited the testimony about the sexual abuse claims. This was actually upholding a legal decision by the Supreme Court in an unrelated case. So this was based on legal precedent. He wasn't doing this just to be a douchebag. Like this, this had real legal precedent behind it. And so they limited the testimony about the sexual abuse claims and did not allow the jury. This is the part that I find a little fucked up. Did not allow the jury to vote on manslaughter charges yeah. instead of murder charges. So it's... What they talked about it in detail in the documentary, it's basically like imperfect manslaughter yes. where it's, look, you did something wrong, but circumstances, context matter. The idea is the circumstances meant that you your extreme action might have had some merit to it. But they took that off the table the second time around. Yeah, that's what's so interesting. First of all, when you remove the sexual allegations, when you remove the history of sexual abuse. Yep. You essentially give them no reason for why they did this. You can't say like, hey, these boys did this because of this. They just look like whole-blooded killers. I think I understand the legal argument that it's like you have to remove these contextual things. At the end of the day, we have decided that this thing we call murder is illegal. I do not think making murder illegal was intended to put life sentences on Two boys that had been beaten up since they were children and finally snapped on their sick father. I don't think that that's what the law was intended to do. And the other thing is, and they talked a lot about it in the documentary, it felt dirty. It felt, hey, prosecution couldn't get it done in the first time. So judge is going to come behind him and say, you know what? We're not going to allow that in the second trial. When the jury was deadlocked, it wasn't like a two out of ten. No, it, it was, was six a six and six. Out of six. You yeah. convinced six people yep. that they did something because something else. And then like even some of the jurors said, like, you didn't give us any other choice in the second trial as far as... You basically gave us murder... You gave us death penalty. I'm sorry, death. Death penalty or um, life in prison, no parole. Yeah. Those were my only two choices, so they chose the lesser. Yeah. Which is, what, by the way, what the boys received. They were convicted of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. And thankfully, the jury did not choose the death penalty for them. They did give them life without parole, which at least gives them a fighting chance, right? 
They did try appealing the case on multiple occasions. All of them were shot down by various courts, either by just denying it outright, the appeal, or choosing not to hear them, which basically let the previous ruling stand on some of those, on some of what they were trying to appeal. For most of their incarceration, too, the brothers were forced to be separated. In fact, when they first put them in prison, they were put in like maximum security. They thought that they were really, really dangerous men. They've obviously learned over the years that is not the case. Like they're both now involved. They both took different paths, but both eventually landed on being kind of mentors within the prison system and help people figure out a way to make productive lives for themselves while incarcerated. And hopefully when they get out of jail, if that's something that their sentencing allows for them, they weren't even allowed to be in the same prison facility until 2018. And so remember, like, this was from the 90s. They spent more than 20 years not even getting to see each other. The only other person that went through a similar experience in their life to what they themselves had been through. So they finally got in the same facility in February of 2018. And in April of that same year, they were finally put in the same housing unit. And apparently when they saw each other, just immediately hugged, started crying, and have been pretty inseparable since. When you can't call each other either. No. Their only communication was through letters it's so sad to me because and again like i know that the moral of the story is that we can't just go killing whoever we want to that's right because we were hurt right in whatever capacity and there obviously are this, other routes right these, these boys could have taken i think all of that yes all of that is true there are other routes there were people placed in their lives that they could have reached out to i think what we forget is this level of I love this term, the coercive control, that this level of depravity and abuse, it changes a person. Sure does. And it lets you, when you're being held down to at this, you know, and again, you're still only 19 and 21. Like. You're still a child. You're still so young. Like, dear God. You still have not, you know, and like I said earlier, there's a lot of people who suffered abuse when they were little in that they don't even have the capacity to understand what happened or the reality to admit it and talk about it and get help for it until their 30s and 40s, which is why, and so it's why it's so important to, you know, anytime we're going to vote around these laws that say, hey, how long do you have to self-report? Push it until your 30s. Give people time to recover because a lot of times it's hard for people to even say, yes, I was abused. Yes, I went through this. Yes, this is my story. Then you talk about, Two people who had no one, you know, their family clearly was witnessing something they didn't think was right. They obviously didn't realize, but they didn't have their mom. They didn't have their dad. And so, yes, their judgment was skewed. It wasn't correct. I'm not even sure that they really understood that what they were doing wasn't the only option that they have. I think that there is a punishment that they should and did receive. I don't think that they should never be allowed back into society, which is what America does, by the way. Like we, as part yeah, of yeah, just our put it over here criminal, so I don't have to look yeah, at it. We throw them away and say right. like you're useless. Listen, and there's a quote in there about like no one is saying at the end of the day like we're a better world because the Menendez brothers are put away. All of us would still be safe. We'd also all be sleeping in our beds. Whether the Menendez brothers were released today. These aren't some mass murderers. Right, or kept in for another 20 years. As long as you're not the ones who are punishing them and abusing them, you're probably pretty safe. It's again, spirit of the law, Carla. Like, I don't understand. I'm so glad that they've been able to find 
some sense of happiness in their lives, like finding some sense of purpose. Some questions that I was asking myself at the end of this were, would this have ended differently if they were girls instead of boys? Would this have ended differently if the family weren't rich and powerful? Would this have ended differently if the family weren't in Hollywood, right? So that some of these claims of them being good actors didn't stick. Like it didn't matter that it was music industry. All people saw was Beverly Hills and he works in Hollywood as an executive. And I think it painted some things. Would this have ended differently if if we knew then what we know today about toxic masculinity and all the way that presents itself? Claiming, I, I know people that are men that have in fact been raped. Claiming that is not a possibility beyond the fact that it is just dumb. Like you clearly are not an educated person if you say something like that. And I don't know how you sleep at night having laid that at the feet of these two boys, Pam. Ew. I definitely think if these were two girls and they described what had happened, they would not have been. I think about Lorena Bobbitt was not, was in the same time frame. And not only did she get off, she got off with an insanity plea, which is like never happens. No. And she just went to 30 days of a psychiatric care. And I know of another case of of two children who killed their father. Now they were still under the age. They were sentenced for much shorter time frame, under 10 years. They went to, similar thing, allegation of yep, abuse by same, the parents and yep, all that. Same thing. And they were then released and are are living their lives. Um And so that's the part of it to me is that like these two men could have been rehabilitated and I hope, and it seems like it, that they were rehabilitated to some extent to live this life within the prison system. One last thing that I forgot to mention earlier that was another like, would it have ended differently? Because you mentioned this about their defense attorney that actually might've been one of their death knells as well. So at one point, Mm -hmm. if you remember this, it was uncovered that Abramson had asked one of the, uh, he was a defense witness named William Vicari to edit his own notes, but the district attorney's office decided not to launch a criminal investigation on Abramson. So basically, like they just got in this tit for tat that like, he couldn't include this in his notes because it was damning toward the boys. Yeah. Now, ultimately, I think Abramson was being a good defense attorney by saying it. Ultimately, the person that handed over his notes with his signature on it, even if she knew about it, and that's shaky ground too, he's responsible for his own notes. Like if I'm the defense attorney, if I'm any attorney, I am to assume that what you are giving to me signed as my credible witness is an accurate account of what's going on. I don't think she went too far by asking it. I think he went too far by providing it and she went too far by letting it through. Basically what happened is when the prosecution, the second set of trials, went and requested them directly from his office, they were sent the unedited version instead of the edited version. And this was during the penalty phase of their trial. There are lots of people, and I don't disagree with them, that said that that did crazy, irreparable damage to this case. And at that point, it made it look like for any jurors that were like, well, maybe they, maybe this was manipulation. It just looked like, even though this was all on Abramson and Vicari, like it 
looked like further manipulation from these boys. It was not a good look. So Abramson, she did a memoir, but outside of that, she has never spoken out about this case. For her, while it is inexcusable, really, from her, from a professional setting, at the end of the day, yes. I think this is a good example of like her heart got caught up in the case. 100%. She was more concerned about winning these two men, their freedom, that she was willing to ask questions that she she shouldn't have like she was pushing herself past it she let her heart get too far in it and because of that she made bad decisions and it screwed her and it screwed them because really the case was actually doing pretty well mm -hmm. like they they were actually and they of course know this now with the the beauty of hindsight but the case was going well she didn't need to do that and in fact like they're they're they might be out free today if this flub up hadn't happened. Now, I don't know that for sure. I'm making a lot of speculation there. And I'm sure Abramson, that's part of why she hasn't spoken out, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I cannot imagine the weight that sits on her shoulders from that. Either way, it just feels like the justice system failed these boys and did so not... I love the point that you made. Like, we're no safer for it. And these men have now lost their lives twice. They lost it maybe three, four, five times. They lost it when their father started abusing them. They lost it when their mother stopped defending them. And then they lost it again by a judge and a jury. Yeah. Like, it's just fucked up. So I won't belabor it, but I will say that the question is, that would this have still come if they were in Hollywood? What is interesting, and you know this because we watched the documentary, but at that time... In the 90s, when the boys are being tried, guess who else had just been tried and found not guilty? And so when you want to talk about a hard-on by the prosecution, it was a perfect storm. Oh, yeah. O.J. Simpson. Yep. I forgot about this connection. That's yeah. right. Because didn't the boys even, didn't Lyle yes. even meet him? Yeah. So funny. Yes, they did. They met in prison. They met O.J. in prison. And because, again, they're like coming from this very famous background, they knew of each other. And I don't know if it was Eric or Lyle, but one of them recommended um, Leslie's co-worker who right. was, was uh, Johnny Cochran. Yeah. And so that's how they ended up with that legal team, how OJ ended up with that legal team, which of course was able to get him off. But because the boys' trial had been pushed and then they, it, they got the deadlock and then they had to be retried – the prosecution was not looking good. Like that DA's office. Oh, they had a bloody nose and a black eye. Yeah, they not were good. not doing well. And that's more of the ickiness that went behind when the judge it's was the like, hey, we're not going to let you bring in any of the sexual abuse allegations. So no, I, I don't think if this would have been in Pennsylvania, I don't think it would have had the same impact as it did there in this Hollywood setting. I still think the media would have blown up all over it and still looked at it. But there wouldn't have been this beat down prosecution who really was going for this win. Last thing we'll say on this case, there was a recent law that was changed. The, yes. the so-called battered woman's law that is being expanded to allow allegations of certain kinds of abuse into testimony. So it, it's not looking great for the Menendez brothers, but it is another avenue that didn't exist before. There is no denying, and again, even the defense attorneys said this from the beginning, there is no denying that these boys committed this crime. And it was, in fact, a crime. They yeah. took a human life, and it was not, at least as far as they can prove, in eminent self-defense. There are other avenues they could have taken. But what do you think? Did they deserve this? All right, you guys, let us know. Also, you know where you can find us. 
at Nosy Bees, both on Facebook and Instagram. Michael, tell us how you can catch us on the email. I mean, you can't, of course, go old school and send us <laughs> the old electronic mail. And to do so, you would email us at nosybeesforlife at gmail.com. That's N-O-S-E-Y-B-E-E-S, the number four, L-I-F-E, at gmail.com. All right, y'all. And until next time, bitches. Bye. Bye. Hey, you made it to the end of the podcast. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. And I know that we've given a lot of our unsolicited feedback, but at the end of the day, it's also important that we remember to stay kind. Stay curious. But of course, stay nosy. Bitches. Bitches.